Comic Scene, the podcast, episode three. This episode, we're joined by Pat Mills. Hi, Pat. Hi, Phil. Hi. So how did you get involved in comic scene and how did your column come about? Um, well, I, I, I was just delighted that uh, there was going to be um, a, comic, uh, a comic magazine coming out that was going to cover all the aspects of the, of the world of comics. So um, I, w- I was very happy to do uh, uh, Last Word for it, a column where... Uh, um, Sometimes I rant and sometimes I praise whatever's whatever's going on in the industry. And uh, and it, it's definitely taken a kind of uh, creating comics turn recently. Uh, and uh, your blog also uh, has been touching upon uh, a lot of how how to do comics, how to make comics, how to be creative. And uh, I wonder if you could talk about your storyteller um, segment on your blog and where that's going. Yeah, um, on on the blog uh, Millsverse, uh, this storyteller, and uh, each week it covers um, a subject uh, mainly relevant for for comics, but also relevant for uh, uh, for novels uh, and even film. And there's so ma- there's so many areas that um, uh, people aren't always aware of, uh, and perhaps um, how to books on writing don't always cover. Um, and, and so, for example, in, in the case of comics, um, w- one of the subjects I, I, I deal with, in fact, I think it's on the, uh, uh, the current uh, storyteller, is world building. How, how do you build a world? Um, because it, it, anyone who's familiar with my stories, like um, martial law or stories in 2000 AD, will know that they're they're pretty rich worlds there. In other words, you, you don't just have a, uh, you know, a hero who's got blonde hair and a villain who's got uh, black hair. And, you know, they, they, they've both got um, sophisticated uniforms, costumes. Uh, they come from different uh, places. And, uh, and so I, I think that was a valuable one for people. I mean, a lot of it is pretty obvious. You, you just sit down and you think, OK, who is this character? Where has he come from? And, uh, and, and in terms of character development, there are, there are certain rules, I think, that are, um, that are worth stressing. Um, that they're known in the film industry, but I'm not always so sure that they're known in the comic industry. Like, uh, uh, what does the hero want and what does he need? And, and they're often in contradiction to one another. Um, so those are the kind of things I get into in storyteller and uh, and it's, it's been running for a, for a good good few weeks is there uh, plans to, to collect this together at all uh, I think so yeah um, because uh, well there's, there's so many aspects to it and um, you know for people who who um, you know aren't turning them up on the uh, blog I think it's nice to have a uh, a paper and, a, and an ebook edition, and uh, currently I think we're up to uh, I think about um, blog twelve. And uh, what I hope to be getting onto shortly are um, test cases. In other words, case studies where 
you know, you look at particular stories and how they came to be created in detail, applying the rules and uh, uh, the insights that I've been getting into in, in the uh, earlier blogs, which get into character, action, um, the inciting incident, uh, the finale. So subsequently, we'll look at uh, case studies, and one of them should be uh, on Slain. In other words, how did, how did Slain actually uh, come about? Um, you know, I was just sitting there one day and thought rather foolishly, <laughs> why don't I do a, a Celtic hero, <laughs> which was pretty crazy. Uh, and, uh, and also... Um, some other uh, possibilities, uh, like uh, a story I'm devising at the moment, and and how that's uh, how that comes about, and when the artists draw it, uh, it's a story um, uh, about a robot called Schlock, and he introduces a series of um, um, what you might call almost EC horror comic stories, uh, stories with a with a twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who's familiar with Weird and Eerie will probably remember the was it the uh, the Grave Digger or the the, the Crypt Keeper who used to introduce and, and end off stories. So uh, this robot Schlock um, introduces stories and uh, then comes out with some uh, uh, suitably unpleasant robotic uh, finale to the stories. But what would be interesting for that is that because that's absolutely current, so we're not actually looking back, if you like, um, what happens, um, you know, I'll I'll be sort of reporting as we go. So if, for example, um, an artist uh, uh, takes on one story and then he or she might change it, or they, um, you know, they might add something to it and so on. Or, or alternatively, they might get halfway through the story and then say, hey, it's not for me. So that, and, and walk off the set, if you like. And all those things happen in the real world of comics. So I think it's quite nice on Storyteller to, to actually, you know, show an audience what really goes on behind the scenes and, uh, and if they want to be part of that. Yeah, I mean, arguably, all of your prose books have, have, have kind of tapped into that recently. So you had your autobiography, you had uh, you have um, the Kiss My Axe book coming up, uh, the Storyteller uh, book. Um, and a lot of that is about the development of uh, creating comics, creating comics work. Um, so how, how does your process generally work when you're working with an artist? I think our, our listeners would be really keen to hear how a project kind of comes into being. Right, okay. Well, um, let's let's pick an actual example, um, a, a current one, if you like, um, where um, there's a, a future shock story um, which uh, a French magazine is interested in, and it's called Pioneer 13. And... Uh, I have to talk just a little bit about the nature of the story uh, so that you can kind of visualise it. It's a story with that um, that flavour of Duncan Jones' Moon or 2001 A Space Odyssey or Dark Star. So it's a space story 
where there's a, um, uh, a dangerous computer and there's a crew who are kind of fed up and there's a problem. So uh, the, the French are interested in that story. And so they've said to me, uh, they will um, go out and find an artist. And uh, uh, I'd say, I mean, this is getting on to the whole business of working with an artist. I'd say the chances of them find, they're, they're after a hot artist. Mm-hmm. And for um, for a one-off story like that, they might just get someone. I mean, they're mentioning various uh, big names in France, and I'm thinking, oh, no, you'll never get him. Um, but to take that story, a spaceship story, a lot of artists, that would be totally wrong for them um, because not, not, not every artist actually likes drawing spaceships, and uh, they're particularly demanding. So... Um, it wouldn't surprise me if in a month or so's time they say, hey, we've tried the various people um, uh, that, that we thought we would be perfect for this, but we've drawn a blank. And then they'll turn to me for ideas. And then I will say to them, well, I can think of uh, artist X who will be brilliant at space, but he may or may not get the, the horror that you're looking for. And another issue here is, uh, for a space story, uh, the artist, uh, I can think of a British artist who would do a great job, but primarily in black and white, sometimes in color sort of takes away from things. So that, if you like, has set the background here. And you can see all these uh, choices and decisions that are going on in my mind. Now, okay, so then we finally decide on an artist, and an artist says, um, love the story, um, so then we go forward from there. Now, on a one-off story, uh, and if, they, if they're very established artists, I probably wouldn't say to them, well, look, uh, send me a design of the spaceship first, because I, I, I would know they know what they're doing. I mean, say, for example, I mean, it's never going to happen, but say, for example, it was uh, the wonderful Ian Kennedy who does these beautiful painted uh, spaceships and did Dandere and so on. I would never have the nerve to say to him, oh, could you send me a design first, Ian, of (laughs) what it would look look like? Because, I mean, this is a guy at the top of his profession. But if it was a new artist, let's say, and I wasn't quite sure of them, I'd say, look, send me a design first, send me a pencil sketch of, of what the spaceship looks like and uh, and what the protagonist looks like, the main character. Um, because you often find artists who are great at hardware are often, they can be a little weak sometimes on, on, their, on figure work and faces because they, it's like they put all their creative energy into, into, the, um, into the hardware and there isn't a, isn't a lot left over. So assuming that that all works out, now if it was a new artist, um, I, I would want to make sure that not only did they have uh, the, you know, the talent to do a great spaceship and a, and a great uh, central character, but also that they could tell a story. Now, a, a danger in comics, which has really faded away somewhat, uh, primarily because... Uh, um, We've, we've lost certain readers who, who won't tolerate, if you like, cult comics. In other words, comics that are perhaps a bit avant-garde, a bit, a bit indulgent, if you like. Um, 
So I would want to check on their storytelling to make sure that they can tell a story in a straight line from A to Z, because a criticism of comics uh, for a while was that um, uh, unless you're an aficionado, you didn't know how to read them. You didn't know what order to look at the pictures. And yeah. it's, it's almost like you needed a, um, you know, a, 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 an O-level in comic reading in order to start. <laughs> so I, I would check on all those things. And you would be surprised even today how some new artists have great talent, but they're not great storytellers. And I have to say to them, no, look, you've got to do it this, this way. Um, and I know that seems a bit conservative and so on. But we want, uh, we, just as comic scene is about mainstream comics, so am I. And, I. and I want to appeal to a lot of readers. I, I don't want to appeal to people who are used to looking at comics upside down or something. Um, so I, I, would, I would really put that message across. And, um, and sometimes, you know, the artist will suggest other ideas and so on. So for a one-off story like the one I've described, the process is relatively simple. If it's a serial, um, then the biggest challenge is, uh, can they persevere? Can they stay with a story that's going to be part of their life for, what, let's say six months? You know, And some yeah. of them don't. You know, I mean, particularly young artists, they go on, oh, I, I, you know, I can't face this. You know, I've got to go off and do something else. And... Uh, so all those factors have to be taken into account. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting what you're talking about there. Is it's a genuine collaboration then, and a lot of the time spent in editorial these days means that the the, the creators, the writer and artists, are actually separated uh, a lot of the time. But it strikes me that you know your method and 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 uh, you know your track record, you've always worked directly with your collaborators. Yeah, and, and it, it works well. Um, sometimes there, there are drawbacks to it. And, and I did um, discuss this in Storyteller, where sometimes if an artist has lots of ideas, lots of story ideas, as well as art ideas, um, if I can, I, I'll, I'll accommodate them. But sometimes there isn't always the space for that. And they kind of get squashed in a bit um so so there are dangers it's just like any creative process that there's there's no one system that's right i mean for example uh on charlie's war uh, drawn by the great joker hoon um we only talked on the telephone maybe three four times in all those years that he was doing it because he was the ultimate professional and it was like, okay, I've got the script, leave it with me, I know what I'm doing. That isn't so much a, a process that works today, um, but I, I, I do have a hankering for that system as well. And not just Joe Cahoon, uh, the late Carlos Esquera. Uh, I, I've got to um, uh, do a, a video tribute for him this week, and I was thinking about Third World War, which we worked on together. And uh, at first, my mind was a blank on the subject because I thought, well, there were, we didn't really discuss it much. But actually, that was Carlos's strength because he just got on with it. He, he, he read the script. 
he got it, he understood it, and he just he just ran with the ball and, and did a superb job. But so you have to sort of vary your approach depending on the, on the artist. Um, some artists will work like uh, Carlos and, and and Joe, and then others want to be. Um, you know, very, very involved in, in the subject matter. And sometimes, of course, they may have some expert knowledge um, that I don't have. I mean, say, for example, uh, I, I was going to uh, write a martial arts story. Now, there might be an artist who draws that and says, no, 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 that's the wrong pose, and you should add this and that and the other. And, of course, it would be a godsend to me as a writer if you have a, an artist with that kind of expert knowledge. And I'm sure, again, coming back to uh, Ian Kennedy, if if someone was writing um, an aircraft story, I'm sure if they got some of the details wrong, Ian would say, oh, no, 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 that's, you know, that's the Mark II that you're talking about there, you know, and, and uh, uh, what you actually want is the Mark III and, and so forth. So it, it's great if there is expert knowledge, uh, and that does make it... Um, uh, an interesting and exciting collaboration. Yeah, well, you mentioned uh, Third World War there, and I think that's really something that is uh, ripe for a, a, a reprint in, uh, in a new format because, you know, it's hard to track down the original issues of that now, and it's still pretty relevant, I think, uh, in, in today's so issue. Yeah. Very much so. In fact, uh, I'm currently in discussion with uh, Rebellion on that subject, and they have tentatively um, scheduled it. And I think it would be, um, you know, because it's an important work by Carlos that hasn't uh, seen the light of day for many a year, I, I think it would be great for it to, to come out. And as you rightly say, it's, um, it's probably more relevant now than, than when, it, um, when it first appeared. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe just leading on to uh, from that, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the state of the the comics industry. We, we were chatting off air uh, before we started this interview, and we were talking about how how the the market has kind of shifted and how there's these other influences. But you had quite a few interesting points to say about what you felt about you know the so called distractions or the so called you know decline of the comics industry. Yeah, the, uh, I, I think for a long time, um, from maybe the end of the 90s uh, over into the millennium, it, it was generally held by uh, a number of professionals that the decline in comics was due to uh, video games, changing demographics, and um, uh, movies that uh, were kind of eclipsing comics. And... Um, uh, I always knew that wasn't true, and uh, uh, over the years I've increasingly challenged it because, um, and I think it's provable that the, the, the real reason that uh, a lot of mainstream newsstand comics declined um, was because uh, um, they, th there was no passion behind them in, in, in some instances. The editors didn't always... Um, if you like, keep pace with uh, their readers and uh, and so on. And in 2018's case, of course, uh, as is well known, um, 2018 grew up 
Uh, and therefore it took a lot of readers with it who are, are now in their 30s or 40s or whatever, but we lost an awful lot of readers. And when those readers uh, wrote in and complained, um, often they, you know, those, those letters didn't appear or they were ignored. I still have one or two of them because uh, they matter a lot to me. And we, we let our readers down. There's, there's no question of it. And uh, a lot of them uh, just voted with their feet. They said, this comic's getting too, um, too weird, too adult, too cerebral or whatever. And, you know, there's so much evidence um, that uh, there could be a comic uh, revival um, right across the board. And, you know, there, there's the, 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 the evidence is in many, many forms. You have Commando, which goes from strength to strength, and which I was reading as a kid, or I was reading the, the picture library equivalent of it. I don't know if it was uh, how long it's been going, but I know it's been going for a hell of a long while. Um, and it's because they haven't changed. They haven't grown up, if, if that's the word. And uh, uh, in France, uh, comics are still read uh, by um, kids as well as adults. And of course, these kids have video games just like uh, British kids and so on. Now, we, we, we fumbled the ball. Uh, and um, I, I think... I suppose the reason I bang on about that is because it, once we acknowledge that, then there's maybe a chance that we can work towards getting those readers back. But there's a caveat here. Um, that's if, if people want to. Now, I personally do. I love the idea of working for a mainstream audience. Uh, if you're like a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid uh, who possibly doesn't even look at the credit box, doesn't even know who, who's done it, just knows, ah, I like this story, I like this art. And then as they really get into it, they maybe think, oh, who is this guy? Who, who wrote this? Who drew this? And, and so on. But I love working for that audience, primarily because they're actually more demanding uh, than an older audience who will... Um, you know, they, they tend to be a little bit more tolerant. Uh, kids aren't very tolerant. So uh, it really keeps you on edge. Um, but I, I have to say, I think so many people in the comic industry would rather um, produce graphic novels, if you like. Or as one comic artist said to me, um, uh, fat comics with uh, bits of cardboard stuck to it. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, um, but th that's the case that, you know, there's this, even though the, the, the sales of these uh, graphic novels um, are, are often uh, quite low, um, but, you know, the, the people concerned feel, well, if they've got a good review in The Guardian or something, it's, it's made their day. I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I, I, I like the playground as a... <laughs> Uh, you know, as as the place where you really prove yourself. That's the that's the arena I go for the the newsstand audience, and so I really miss that uh, that market. And I uh, and I regret that I can actually remember the moment in time where I had to go along with the prevailing view of um, you know comics growing up. I, I knew if I didn't uh, that I would be left by the wayside, as several other um uh, comic book writers uh were like 
Jerry Finley Day, for example, the uh, uh, writer creator of Rogue Trooper. And, mm. But I can I I still I can still remember that moment of thinking I've got to adapt to change. I've got I've got to make a living and uh, uh, and you know uh, so I I have to evolve. Um, but I, I mean, there should be there should be room for both markets, for God's sake, shouldn't there? There should be a market for uh, an older audience. But I think we also have to remember, um, you know, all these, uh, you know, all our jobs in comics and so on. They all stem back from that core audience of eight to fourteen. You know, not from the nineteen-year-olds, not from the twenty-five-year-olds. And possibly not from the, the six or seven year olds. It's that core audience of uh, male and female. Um, and I think there's, there's no reason why stories for them cannot be um, just as sophisticated in a different way. There's just certain subjects that, you know, uh, are off limits, if you like, um, sex or, you know, nudity or. Uh, particularly gratuitous violence, things like that, um, and um, and also, of course, uh, lots of talking heads. Uh, and in that sense, I think that audience are probably right. Um, too many talking heads um, probably is against the um, uh, the rules of drama. Yeah, I mean, certainly in in the news agents, there's very few um, publications that sit between that kind of Bino and 2000 AD market. There seemed to be a lot more, certainly when I was growing up, and there didn't seem to be, uh, there's a kind of snobbery, I suppose, uh, associated with with that as well, where, you know, that that market has kind of been left uh, high and dry. You know, it's a real shame that there isn't anything for that, like you say, 8 to 14-year-old audience oh, but there is a couple of, of, of publications but you know they're they're not as mainstream maybe as as they should or or, or could be um and you were talking to me uh again just before we, we started about a, a video clip that, that that you're going to be uh talking about in the upcoming columns you want to to let the listeners know about that oh i mean it's it's amazing um there's a a boy uh, called theo and he was talking to his dad on video uh, about Judge Dredd, The Cursed Earth, and how much he liked it. And uh, uh, I guess he'd be somewhere between eight and ten, something like that. And um, he liked uh, the alien in The, in the Cursed Earth tweak uh, because he was uh, very smart but pretended uh, to be stupid. And he loved the monster Satanus because he was such a scary monster. And um, it was the most endearing uh, video. And it, it got masses of uh, retweets and likes and impressions. And uh, Theo's father, Chris, um, uh, wrote to me and said it was okay to, uh, to, to um, uh, uh, feature it and, and quote... And he's just reading from his, uh, um, his message to me here. He said, um, my lad's Theo, it's been a real struggle finding actual comics rather than free gift bagged toy franchise promos for my kids growing up. There's Phoenix and the Beano, both of which are great, but slim pickings for those of us who grew up with dozens of titles every single week. So now... 
he's taken to exploring vintage 2000 AD. It's a bit of a boon. It's astonishing. He's devouring this stuff so quickly. It's properly turning lights on lights in his head and giving him ideas and making him think about stuff. And it's totally age appropriate. The early stuff. And plenty of his young pals are the same. And then he says in caps, the market is there. Sure, they're into video games and YouTube stars and tablets and whatnot, but ultimately they want stories that tickle their imagination. And that can be a film, a book, a TV show, or a comic. And I think that's a great summary of, you know, everything that comics should be about and what's gone wrong and, and confirmation that it could be put right if there was the will to do so. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great quote. And uh, I think the, the video is, is available online. We'll put a link up to that uh, on the uh, Facebook page for the podcast. Um, going back to that mainstream point, actually, just before we move on, I'd like to talk about what you're work, working on next uh, for v- various publications, including 2080. But um, just just a, just a couple of things that, that, that I've observed when we're talking about that mainstream audience. I was I was quite surprised to see that um, in the tributes to John Armstrong uh, that that you wrote and, and tell me if this is correct or not uh, the Grange Hill comic strip that was in uh, the Beeb uh, magazine. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, because um, uh, I, I was a, a huge fan of Grange Hill. And uh, so when uh, the Beeb comic uh, came out and they said, uh, uh, we'd like you to write it. Have you got any ideas on artists? I said, well, it has to be John Armstrong because, yeah. and he was perfect for it. It, uh, it did a great job. He really is one of the uh, um fantastic art classic british artists we have have had i mean sadly he's passed and uh, um you know for anyone who, who is unfamiliar with the name uh he did uh moonchild uh with me for misty which has been reprinted and is a collected book and uh but he also did uh the series bella at the bar uh, about a, um, a gymnast, and that was phenomenally popular. There were Bella annuals and, and all this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, he's a really great, great artist. And uh, and also, talking about um, slightly older work, but I, I did read with interest that um, Big Finish have adapted um, your Doctor Who stories. Can you tell us uh, about that project? Well, there's two... Uh, Doctor Who stories, which I think um, that, that I wrote and were drawn by uh, Dave Gibbons, that um, I think have been endlessly reprinted. And uh, uh, one of them is called um, The Iron Legion. And um, it's about, uh, it works on the premise that the, the, the Roman Empire uh, didn't disappear uh, under the sort of barbarian hordes, but uh, became increasingly sophisticated and uh, had a space program and eventually went on to conquer the stars. Because the whole premise, I think, with uh, conquering armies, if you like, is that they have to go on conquering. They have to go on stealing other people's lands and, in this case, planets. So that was the Iron Legion. And it featured um, uh, Tom Baker. And the, um, the other one was uh, Star Beast. 
uh, which I won't say too much about in case uh, anyone is uh, not familiar with the storyline, so I don't want to do a, a spoiler on that. But it's uh, about an alien who's being pursued by um, uh, other aliens, and uh, there's a kind of, um, uh, if you like, Grange Hill element in it, where um, uh, the Doctor, once again Tom Baker, um, has a... Um, um, a black schoolgirl as a um, as his sidekick, and at the time, I think that was that was quite um, revolutionary. You know, this was uh, you know long before the um, uh, the the kind of Doctor Who revival on on TV, where it had a more of a EastEnders uh, quality to it. And uh, so, anyway, those two stories have. Um, uh, have been endlessly reprinted and they've been colorized and and so on and so big finish um uh, decided to do um uh audio versions of them and um and they're terrific and um uh they've been adapted by alan barnes um and uh i i, I listened to uh the the trailers of of them um uh, only a few days ago, and they, they sounded absolutely amazing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sitting down and enjoying the, the full uh, audio dramas there. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic productions, and Tom Baker, you know, really just sounds like the Doctor that, that I remember from, you know, the, the 70s and, and early 80s. So, yeah, we'll look forward to, to those uh, coming out. I think they're coming out in uh, in March, uh, around about the, the the time of this podcast will be going out. So that's great. And of course, uh, with with Tom Baker once again. Uh, I mean, like you. I mean, he's, I think he's my all time favourite Doctor. So uh, it, it, it's great to it's great to see him in that context. You know, uh, coming back. Yeah, still still going strong, and and you know, again, um, he he just he just is that part. He just lives that part. I think you know, which which really helps. Um, and uh, and we can't have you on without talking about what you've got coming up for 2000 AD. So, if there's anything you could tell us, sure. Um, well, the uh, the story that um, I'm halfway through, and the artist is uh, almost halfway through, uh, is uh, Defoe, and um, it's uh, he's a 17th century um, zombie hunter. But this is a uh, Defoe's story with a difference because um, it's set in outer space because there was um, a British uh, plan. I obviously, went no further than a plan, but they were they were really talking about it about putting a man on the moon in the 17th century, and so they 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 talked about uh, um, you know how it would be done, and obviously. You know, we, we, we can sort of read their accounts today uh, with a kind of, uh, oh, oh, that sounds really funny. But of course, they were deadly serious at the time. So Defoe is not steampunk. Um, there's plenty of other people who do uh, comic stories with steampunk. Defoe is clockpunk. It's the earliest stuff. And uh, so as you can imagine, they're, um, the spaceship that's going to... Uh, uh, to take men to the moon uh, is going to be quite individual and uh, and everything that, that that goes with it is is going to be quite demanding like uh, you know 17th century spacesuit for example mm -hmm. and 
I have a fantastic artist, uh, artist called Stuart Moore, who, um, I mean, I've seen the first episode and the spaceship is amazing. Uh, I've, I think I've looked at it for, uh, oh, I don't know. I'll admit to two or three hours of looking at it at least because it's just so, there's so much thought and care and love gone into that design. And it's utterly convincing. And you really think, my God, the British are going to send a man to the moon in the 17th century. That It's got that level of conviction and I think it, this takes us back, if you like, to what we were talking about earlier with uh, um, writer-artist collaborations that um, um, after I'd sort of outlined the story, Stuart, uh, who's quite knowledgeable on the whole subject of uh, astronomy and uh, the British science scientists of the Renaissance were saying, um, well, yeah, you, you, you know about this or that. And I'd say, oh, no, I didn't know about that. So he, he pointed me in the direction of um, um, some fascinating early science fiction books. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, Kepler, uh, the astronomer Kepler, wrote uh, a book called The Somnium, uh, which means the dream, and in which uh, he, he goes to the moon. So... In this Defoe story, without giving away the plot, um, the British have a rival. I mean, just as today, you know, it's the it's Russia versus America kind of thing on who, who goes to the stars or whatever. Uh, in in uh, in the 17th century, the big rivals were the Dutch. So the Dutch have a spaceship called the Somnium after Kepler, and they want to get to the moon first, so there's, you know, nothing changes. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's, there's a space race on. And um, so a lot of that came about um, through the artist. And uh, so, yeah, it's a good example of, of uh, how an artist can, can add a great deal to, to a story. And I believe there's a new artist on Slain as well, Leonardo Manco. Ah, oh, you, that, that's official now, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Ah, oh, I'm glad I can talk about that. I have seen the first episode uh, and it's unbelievably good. Now, you probably expect me to say that after every Slain series, but no, th this one is absolutely incredible. Um, he's... I'm waiting to see the colour version yet. And I actually love the black and white version. And, uh, I, you know, I'm sure there's a way... I mean, this sometimes happens, doesn't it, in comics, where, you know, you see the, the black and white original and then you see it coloured and you think, oh, actually, I like Batman in black and white as well as colour. Uh, so there's an element of that here, but I'm sure the colour version will be great. Um, and I'm... Uh, waiting avidly to, to see it, actually, as we, as we speak. Um, but what makes this so remarkable is um, when, I, um, when I started off with uh, Slane, my role model, uh, in other words, I was thinking, well, what do I want it to look like? And um, what I wanted it to look like 
to a large extent, was like a, a French series called Conquering Armies, which has, I think, been reprinted recently, just called Armies uh, from Humanoid. And um, this was a view that um, I was very much on my own with. Uh, my, all my peers uh, just hated it, uh, possibly because they, they were used to a sort of Anglo-American comic look, and possibly because it, it was on occasion um, a little bit stiff or what you might call illustrative. Well, um, this Argentinian artist who's doing Slain is in the tradition of conquering armies, but whatever negative aspects you might say of my original role model, they're certainly not there in his work. It's very flexible, very loose, uh, but it has that wonderful illustrative quality that Conquering Armies had. So you could say in a way that we've actually kind of um, come full circle. I mean, this was the original role model that I wanted Slain to be. And over the years, there's been great artists, but they've often taken uh, the story visually in directions that it was certainly not my intention that, that, that it should have that particular look, but if it worked for the readers, okay. So this one for me is, is a really special story. And he's putting so much time and thought and energy into it that uh, I'm most impressed. Yeah, they, they did put a, a, a kind of uh, a sort of preview image in the 2000 AD Christmas special. And that was a full color uh, image, or, or, uh, you know, that, that is a sort of prologue, if you want, to, to the series. And it, I have to say, yeah, it looked absolutely fantastic. But yeah, it's black and white work. He did a, he did a, a one-off episode of uh, Rogue Trooper uh, a couple of years ago in black and white. And again, fantastic, you know, really talented artist. And look forward to see to see what you, you both come up with on that. Um mm. So is there anything else uh, coming up that, that, that you want to chat about before we, 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 we wind this up? Well, no, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I'm currently just about, uh, I think I've got, uh, I think I've got to write a couple of Defoe episodes. And then I'm finally embarking on uh, volume three of Readem and Weep uh, novel series, which is about the... Um, the protagonist is is coming up with, um, I mean, it's like a fictional history of comics, and so he's uh, uh, coming up with a fictional uh, version of um, 2000 AD called Space Warp, which features Shock and various other characters. So I've actually done the easy bit, which is the comic bit, where I've worked out all the, the stories that he would create, because it's kind of mirroring uh, what actually happened. But, you know, with a, with a kind of a new spin. Uh, but now I've got to get down to the, the actual hard work of, um, of, of writing the novel. And, uh, yep, so that's, that's me for the next few months, I think. So, again, just uh, look out for announcements on Millsverse uh, blog. And, uh, and we'll keep uh, reading the, um, the column uh, every month in Comic Scene. And uh, hopefully chat again uh, in a few months' time. We've hopefully got a collaboration going that, that, that might be quite interesting that we could talk about next time uh, we have you on, Pat. That would be great, Phil. I look forward to it. Thanks very much. Cheers, Phil. Bye. Cheers. Bye.
classic and contemporary review. In this episode, I'm joined by Richard Sheath. Hi, Richard. Hi, Phil. You're right. Yeah, doing well, thanks. Um, I wonder if we could start off by talking about what your comic influences were when you were growing up. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, so when I was growing up, uh, my granddad used to buy me and my brother a comic every week. Uh, my brother would get a humour comic, um, and I would get more of an adventure comic, so New Eagle. That was uh, the main comic that I was able to read from probably about 1983 uh, until it finished in 94. Mm-hmm. So that, that that was my that was my comic as a kid. Great, yeah, it was one of my favourites as well. I have to say, um, and um, and you run a, a, a pretty successful uh, blog. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, I do. Thank, uh, thank you. That's kind words. Uh, yes, I run the boysadventurecomic.blogspot.com. I've been doing that for about two and a half years. Um, so there's something I put something on there every day. I guess the, the blog came from a desire to do something comic-y, but without writing a whole big article every day. I'd been doing a little bit of stuff for John Freeman for his Down the Tubes blog, and I wanted to contribute more, but I didn't have enough time to sit down and write you know, a thousand words a night <laughs> on a particular episode or you know issue that was of interest to me. So I thought doing a blog would be you know a good sort of compromise. It would force me to do something um Every day, that, that that was my goal with it to see how long I could do that for. Could I keep that momentum up? And so I guess the blog is a mixture of things. Uh, sometimes it will be items from my collection. Sometimes it's uh, exhibitions or talks or uh, comic launches that are going on. I live in London, so there's a, there's a few of those in places like Gosh Comics and Orbital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes it will be interviews with. Uh, creators uh, maybe um, some small press creators so i ran three interviews last week sort of in the run-up to the true believers comic festival um and sometimes it's odd things that i spot on ebay so today um, there was a, a jigsaw for uh, jane jane of the daily mirror sort of a big comic strip newspaper strip star of the 30s and 40s always getting into scrapes and losing her clothes in a, in a particularly unlikely sort of way. Uh, but she was a big star, but there's this very obscure jigsaw and that I've never seen before, early sort of spin-off merchandise. So, yeah, so it, it's a real mix of things. It's my blog, so I, I try and um, choose what I want to put up. Um, I guess if I put up things about Alan Moore and Brian Boland and Carlos Square every day, uh, I'd get more hits, but... <laughs> I, I haven't got enough stuff. Nobody has enough stuff in their life to put up things about uh, them every day. So, yeah, it's probably stuff from, I mean, Jane today. So that's from the 30s up until, like I say, I had stuff for True Believers, so small press comic creators and up until now. So, yeah, so it covers a long period of time and it's an eclectic mix of things I like to think. And, I, you know, yeah, I get some nice feedback. The uh, Michael Carroll writes Judge Dredd was very complimentary about it the other day so yeah it's, it's a fun thing to do yeah it's pretty well maintained and i, I was particularly yeah. fond of uh, a blog posting did a couple of weeks ago about the old space raiders crisp uh, packet mm. comic strips um, yeah. which i was a big fan of uh, as a child and and, yeah. and i could see as a child there was a 
a direct relationship with 2000 AD art because it was uh, Robin Smith uh, initially and then later on Brett Ewins who, who illustrated those crisp packets. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely an eclectic mix that you have on, on your blog. So how did that lead you to getting involved with Comic Scene the magazine? I guess it was, it was like my CV. Um, so when Tony first appeared on the scene, um, I said to him, you know, it just seemed like, although I've, I've never met him, and I've still never met him, that our interests were, sort of were overlapping. So really, I just sent him a link to the blog and said, look, this is the sort of stuff I'm interested in. This is the stuff I can write about. Um, have a look. Let me know what you think. Um, and it worked. So, I've, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to say, and I've covered uh, a real mix of things for some of the early issues of Comic Scene, which, uh, which I guess listeners may or may not have come across because they were in the days before it was available in Smiths and things. So I've covered things like um, Yvonne Hutton, who was mm. the uh, female comic artist uh, on Roy the Rovers. Yeah. Unusual to have a female artist. Um, Marie Duval, who was a uh, artist um, in the sort of turn of the 20th century. Professor Peabody from the original Eagle. Fury comic in the 70s, those fantastic Carlos Esquera covers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, um, I mean, I love the covers. The, the rest of it is, uh, I'm not so interested <laughs> um, uh, in Marvel, uh, I'm afraid to say, but some, but some of those covers are fantastic. Um, the Happy Warrior, which is a, a story, again, from the original Eagle, covers the life of Winston Churchill, mm -hmm. uh, drawn by Frank Bellamy. It's particularly uh, fantastic story. Um, that, that I really love. Um, collecting Charlie's War. Charlie's War ran for a, across a number of comics over a, a number of years. Um, so I, I looked into the, the history of that and all the issues it appeared in. Um, and then I've got an issue, an article in the current issue, um, all about Billy's Boots, um, which is a story which I didn't, I didn't because I was reading New Eagle. Um, I only read it for probably, I can't remember, it was in New Eagle for a year or two, so I read it when it was was in there. But um, I, I really love the sort of the everyman character that Billy Dane was. You know, he, he he's not a sort of superhero, Roy the Rover sort of guy. You know, he's a real sort of honest, down to earth um, kid, um, and and he loves playing footer, footer as he calls it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I was actually quite a big fan of that that strip as well. I actually followed it in in uh, in the Tiger and followed it oh, okay. through. To, to the new ego and it was quite funny because they changed the kind of uh, tone of, of the, the strip when it went into the new ego and tried to make it a bit more uh, action adventure you know orientated rather than football oriented he still played footer as you say uh, and he still <laughs> yeah. lost the boots all the time but oh, um, yeah, those, those boots I mean, yeah. so, you know when you think about you know I ran for 20 years you know, Billy's boots and he had to I mean he didn't lose the boots every week but you know they, they got lost a lot uh, so yeah so when i was writing the article i was thinking actually it's not it feels like a football strip but in some ways it's, it's being written like an anti-football strip because they're trying not to play football yeah but what i, I always thought fascinating about it is that there's never the magical elements of the boots are never actually confirmed so I, a part of me no. wondered whether it was just psychological you know if it was all in his head you know um, but yeah, I, I, it ran for so long. I was amazed that, that the writer Fred Baker could could keep up the the interest, not just for the readers, but for himself. You know. Yeah, 
because yeah. he's 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 the writer for the whole strip, isn't he? It's yeah. Not like he sort of does it for a year and thinks, oh my god, I've I've run out of ways to lose a pair of football boots. He just you know <laughs> just heroically and just you know keeps plodding on and turning out these these new and innovative ways to 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 lose the boots. And, and like I say, they never you're never quite sure is it are they really you know are they really magic in these boots or is it is it all in his head? Um, <laughs> So I, I was always, as a kid, I was always slightly amazed because I, I didn't know how comics were produced that in the, you know, the summer holidays would arrive, you know, my summer holidays would arrive and Billy would be on holiday at the same time. Yeah. I always thought I was, that, was, that was very clever that they could do that. And then in the summer, he would play cricket, which again was very, you know, no, you can't play football in the summer because it's, you know, the cricket season. Um, and then it, he would play cricket where, with a pair of Deadshot Kings cricket boots, um, which I was... Because you know, back back in you know when Deadshot King would have been playing, I guess in the 30s, you know that was not, you know, so unusual that people played cricket in the summer and football in the winter. Um, I mean, you got people who played football for England and cricket for England, um, and so you know, so it was possible that that he would have had a pair of fantastic cricket boots. Um, so yeah, I always like to. I'm a big cricket fan, so I was enjoyed seeing a bit of cricket in the strip although normally he was on holiday somewhere and a game of footer would eventually break out there was <laughs> a bit of cricket going on as well yeah it's funny because in scotland you know cricket isn't quite so popular no. so for me it really was a bit of a kind of downturn in in, uh, in the right. antics you know so i was sort of waiting for the football to come by the football season <laughs> to start up again you know um but the artwork is what well, i mean the artwork was absolutely fantastic it was started off by mike western but eventually john gillett drew the majority of of the run uh very consistently and some beautiful full color uh artwork uh over over the years yeah, yeah. I mean, I really. I mean, he's done some. I mean, some of the covers as well for some of the annuals that he, he did for Tiger, and then and then I guess what I'm showing in the issue of the magazine of Comic Scene this month is about these covers that he drew um, overseas that he drew for the Dutch reprint editions of these books um, that have been going for. I mean, there's there's 30 volumes of them. You know, they ran for sort of 20 years. Um, and, and each one of them, uh, you know, has a, has a John Gillett cover to them, which, which which most people won't have seen before. So it was great to be able to find some of those. I, somebody was kind enough to send me a number of the volumes which I have here on my shelves. I, you know, I, I can't read much Dutch, but um, but, the, but the covers are are great. So yeah, I like his real sort of doesn't. I don't know if I can. John Gillett did draw some superhero strips. I'm thinking of some of his sort of early 70s stuff i think for uh, tiger yeah. but he doesn't but you know but billy doesn't look like that he just looks like a normal kid you know it's you know his, his prowess is not coming from you know having practiced for ten thousand hours or whatever it is you have you have to do to be great at something um and it just looks just very real very believable world that, that he's drawing um, which is one of the things that i love about um John Gillett's art and Mike Weston is fantastic as well. A real sort of mastery of black and white um, that, that he brings to a strip was, you know, was again was beautiful to look at. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and what what is uh, quite astounding as well is how it did export because um, I remember uh, mentioning this strip, Billy's Boots, to my old Swedish flatmate when I lived in Glasgow, and he was like, he he totally knew what I was talking about, and I was sort of like, well, I thought that was just a British comic, and he went, oh no, no, we got that uh, as as reprints in in Sweden, um, which really surprised me, you know. Um, so it did travel well, which is quite quite unusual for, for a strip like that. And what was also interesting about it is that he never aged, yet, you know, it did sort of run yeah. between the seasons. So, you know, you run for 20 years and, and yet he stays at whatever age he was, 10 or 12 years old or whatever yeah. he was, you know. But um, but a fantastic run. And, and actually, you know, um, Fred Baker was, seemed to be able to sustain storylines for, you know, years and years. He, he wrote Hotshot Hamish and Mighty Mouse, and he seemed to be able to take quite a thin concept and spin it out for years, yeah. which is it's amazing. Really, yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan, and yeah, that article is in the latest issue, uh, issue one of the the relaunch. Uh, so uh, pick that one up. Um, so what we're going to do uh, today is we're going to uh, ask you to review a classic comic and a contemporary comic. So what is your classic comic that you want to talk about today? Uh, okay, so my classic comic I'm going to talk about is the is the original Eagle that ran from 1950 to 1969. Um Obviously, the strip that most people would have come across in relation to that will be Dan Dare. So Titan Books are reprinting that still. Um, so I'm going to, yeah, that, that would be my choice. Um, and I guess a choice inspired by taking or reading New Eagle um, as uh, probably, you know, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old in 1983 when I started on New Eagle at the time, you know, you could still get old Eagle annuals uh, and jumble sales and things. So I probably picked up a few of the you know, the early 70s, late 60s annuals then um, and, could, and could see that there were all these other stories and this, this other comic that had existed. And obviously with, with Dan there at the, at the forefront, you know, it was a big comic. It was famous. Um, so that sort of drew me back to the original Eagle. Uh, and I found all these fantastic artists who'd worked on the original Eagle um, and it was you know, one way to to see their art because you couldn't, I guess, in the sort of uh, mid-80s, late 80s, you know, there weren't just the, the fantastic volume of reprints that we have now from Rebellion, from Titan. Um, it was only the probably the first of those Hawk books. They, they published a whole series of and their reprints starting in probably about 19, 1990, I think. Um, so that was the first chance I had to see you know, these big collected and they're sort of big oversized editions, big hardback things. So they're the, the sort of the real size, I suppose, that the Eagle was when it came out. Um, and so, yeah, so it was down there that, that I loved. Um, and I love the art of Frank Hampson, um, who was the main illustrator on the show. He was... I'm only saying pausing there because actually a number of other people worked on the strip, partly because of you know, how hard he worked on the strip that he drove himself to ill health on it. Yeah. But he was, you know, he was the creator of the strip uh, and, and he's my favourite artist on it. Uh, and I think it is still running at the moment. There's an exhibition in Southport, which I've been to a couple of times 
um, which is celebrating the centenary of his birth uh, and, ha- and has quite a number of original Dan Dare artboards in it and some of his work from his Life of Christ strip, which is called The Road of Courage, mm-hmm. which he drew in the early 60s, which, which, which I think is his high watermark in terms of you know the quality that he was able to bring to that. I mean, the pages are, I suppose they're sl- maybe slightly bigger than they appeared in the strip, but not not much bigger. And just and the detail on them is just incredible. I mean, the, the fineness of the brush, the, the folds in in the cloth, the detail that you get, and a lot of it completely wasted when you actually print a copy of the pay of the of the of the art because you know the the detail gets completely lost. But when you can see it you know, up close in real life, what, what was printed. It was just fantastic. And you know, that was one of a, a, a series of stories that, that I really loved from the original Eagle and the artists involved. So I'd pick out other stories that people maybe haven't come across unless they've, again, seen maybe some of the reprints that people have put out over the years, particularly four books with their um, Rides of the Range mm-hmm. strip. Um, I always enjoy that. That's, uh, so it's a Western strip um and that's drawn by an artist called frank humphreys who people may have come across actually maybe more from his ladybird book illustrations that he did that's probably oh, yeah. where i saw most of his work as a kid um some fantastic work there on i think he did a one on the battle of the little bighorn there was a one about pirates that i loved as a kid um so a, a number of ladybird books that he worked on but yeah there was this strip called rides of the range and jeff Arnold uh, and Luke with these sort of uh, cowboys getting into I don't know not uh, adventures I guess is the uh, is is the word for it but you know the historical accuracy that, um, that Charles Chilton he was a scriptwriter on it brought to it because he was you know he loved the old west um, and you know he knew a lot about it and he combined with somebody the artist Frank Humphreys who who, who loved the old west as well um, and you know they combined to make this glorious sort of technicolor strip i suppose maybe that's one of the things that i love about the original eagle is that that technicolor feel doesn't have that sort of down and dirty feel that we think about comics as having now and it came out at a time in the early 50s when you know some things had only just come off rationing not everything had come off rationing um and yet here was this big bold you know because it's not printed in what you'd call benday dots yeah no it's printed in um photo gravure you know which means you get these big bold you know washes of uh color you know down there on the front page you know technicolor then you'd have the center spread strip so typically with your sort of your the cutaway drawings across the middle but again people may be familiar with people like leslie ashwell wood drew drew hundreds of those strips uh, sorry hundreds of those cutaways and then an adventure strip along the bottom which varied from, I think it started with a strip that was called Skippy the Kangaroo, which is like a strange sort of French reprint strip that uh, I've, I've no idea how that ended up in there, <laughs> but it was replaced. The strip that ran after that was Tintin. That was Tintin's first um, arrival in, in English comics. It was an adaptation of King Otica's Scepter mm-hmm. that ran. Um, and then an, an adventure story, Luck of the Legion, um, drawn and written by a team of artists Jeffrey Bond and Martin Aitchison and then on the back page you had the um, sort of the real life adventure strip which again was one of those sort of things that people remember it would be 
it's those colour elements, you know, Dan Dare on the front, cutaway drawing in the middle, and then the real-life adventure strip on the back, which covered mainly sort of historical figures, um, you know, who led that sort of muscular Christian life, let's say, that, that Eagle was into, and that I, I guess these days some people um, find slightly harder to get along with. Um, but it covered, eventually, it covered more contemporary figures, so... Winston Churchill was was the first, um, and that's drawn by Frank Bellamy, who's a superb illustrator that I'm sure a lot of people have come across. And it's interesting to see the story develop. It starts off as very sort of, not, you know, Frank Bellamy is a very dynamic illustrator, you know, those big panels exploding and, you know, fists and, you know, thunderbirds people think about, you know. But actually when he starts drawing Churchill, it's very sort of slow and quiet and... Know, nine panels on a page 12 panels whatever it is just very you know this is very solid very serious this is church that we're talking about this is the late 50s um so he's maybe even he prime minister at the time or you know if he wasn't you know he'd only just stop being prime minister um but as he gets into it and because you know, this was being sent to church every week for sort of approval and you know and it's not you know, and it's not being sent back, you know, with, oh, my God, this is terrible. So, he, you know, he relaxes into it and then he brings that more Bellamy sort of visual flair to the strip um, uh, as, as the story develops and as you know, World War One and then World War Two obviously um, comes along and and then Bellamy would go on to draw uh, about Montgomery of, uh, of, out of Alamein, um, again, another contemporary figure at the time. Um so yeah, so 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 you know, Bellamy is in there. Frank Hampson is in there. Um, Don Lawrence again. I'm thinking, you know, thinking about great British comic artists. He drew in Swift, which is one of the companion titles to Eagle. So Eagle launched in 1950. Very distinctive sort of you know visual style, sort of the red and the yellow, and it was very clearly a comic for boys. Um, and then there was there was in the end there was Girl which is a comic for girls. Uh, there was Swift, which is a comic for sort of younger children, and Robin, which is a sort of a nursery title. Um, so trying to sort of appeal to all ages and get people to read one comic and then, you know, maybe start with Robin, then go on to Swift and then Girl or Eagle afterwards. And, and Don Lawrence would draw, again, you know, just a fantastic detail strip in there, Um and Frank and Frank Bellamy as well drew for Swift um, early in his career. Um, drew a story about Robin Hood, and he drew some King Arthur strips. I mean, they're just black and white, um, and you know, they're quite simple, quite straightforward stories. But you know, but the dynamism and the, and the detail you get in a essentially a, a you know a, a nursery comic, you know, you would just you would just never see now. Yeah. And, and the detail and the love that was that was poured into it um, by those creators was was great. And there were other strips, um, other artists that you know that I would recognise and, and that I enjoy the work of. So somebody like John Worsley, uh, I don't know if you've ever come across him. He drew the, the PC forty nine strip mm-hmm. in the original Eagle, which was an adaptation. It was on the radio, um, and you know spawned a, a number of. Um, films as well actually um and annuals and things but um yes yeah, so sort of 
set loose. I mean, set in London, but you know, this sort of copper's beat was you know enormous. You know, it took in you know not quite all of London, but you know, it was you know it was, it was huge and um, this sort of area and these um, you know criminal gangs and things. But but his you know, Wersley's art, um, I really enjoy. He's probably not so well remembered um these days yeah. so you know so you know it's a fantastic selection of you know real high quality artists working on this you know it was a big selling comic at the time you know not as big as you know, uh, the beano but but in it but in its field um probably in the sort of from 1950 to 1960 you know it was the biggest selling comic in its field and we would later on you know, in the sixties, be overtaken by by TV Twenty One, um, which which again was was having a similar approach. That sort of big full color, again using a lot of the artists that have been on Eagle, uh, you know Frank Bellamy on uh, Thunderbirds, Ron Embleton uh, on on Stingray. So using real sort of high quality artists, high quality production values. Um, so yeah, so really, and, and there's so much to to learn about eagle i guess i got into comic sort of fandom and comic research um through being interested in the new eagle and finding you know an advert in the back of a reference book that sort of said oh if you like eagle you should write to these people so i wrote to these people probably when i was about 13 or 14 and somebody wrote back and said oh it's not me anymore you know it's this other guy so i rang out this other guy uh, and we had a chat and he said that you know he'd send me some magazines and you know at the end he said oh Forgive me for asking, but you know, but you sound a bit young. Whatever I was, you know, fourteen or something. You know, most other people. This was probably in about nineteen eighty nine. So most other people were reading, you know, Eagle Times, which was the magazine that yeah. uh, that, that was most interested in Eagle. You know, would have been born, you know, in the mid forties. So, you know, ringing somebody up. You know, everyone else was in the mid. It was in their mid forties or their early fifties. Uh, so yeah, so you know, there were a few young members but but not many um and, and that's the magazine eagle times which still goes on now it's been running for well probably 30 years now comes out four times a year so 120 issues you get a um i think the latest issue has got maybe you got 45 yeah 40 45 pages times 120 issues you know that's an incredible sort of body of scholarship and work and interest that people have in Dan Dare that they have in um, all these strips that they ran and, and, there, were, and there was so and there's so much to collect as well yeah um, I, I guess that was how I got into it I mean there's, there's you know there's nearly a thousand comics <clears throat> if you want to collect them there's you know that takes up a lot of shelf space and you know I never had quite that much shelf space so so I got into collecting all the annuals so so you've got like the normal every year annual so that was that was fine but then there were there were so many spin-offs as well eagle was one of the probably the early comics that really took merchandising um you know to its heart and made a lot of money for the publishers famously it didn't make any money for frank hampson because he'd signed away his rights to to dan dare and when he realized you know this enormously successful create um you know character that he'd created and he had he had no rights to it you know he was very upset about that you know so there were you know the amazing you know toys you could get you know there's walkie talkies there's badges there's braces there's guns there's um 
jigsaws. You know, it's just an enormous array of toys. You know, it was real sort of anybody could put a label on it. Often, you know, these things were not great quality. Um, you know, so that doesn't change with merchandise. You know, these these were pretty ropey. Some of these toys, you know, but um, but they were big and. Uh, but I, but I was collecting sort of the the annuals and the, the spin-off stories they would publish, and I think I probably you know I haven't I haven't got all the books you know not all the annuals that they had, but I reckon there's probably I mean there's nearly three hundred books that you could collect all in, um, uh, and, I, and I've got nearly three hundred, but you know that's that's books that were published at the time, books that have been published afterwards because Dan Dare has been published. You know, reprints volume since the late seventies and Dragon's Dream reprints and there was the Hawk book reprints and Titan have come along and reprinted books. Um, there's overseas material, you know, we were talking about, you know, it's amazing that you and your Swedish flatmate could talk about Billy's boots even though it was in Sweden. Um yeah. where, you know, Dan Dare was just the same. It was reprinted um all all over the world. Um so you know, in um, in Italy, you know, he was in a comic Il Giorno de Ragazza. In uh, Scandinavia, again, he was in a there was a comic Hauk. I think that was in Norway. I think Falcon is the Swedish version. But there's also there's the Australian Eagle. Um, there's the Dutch Eagle. Um, so the, you know, the, so some of these comics, you know, it's just a reprint strip. In, in the comic, you know, in a comic, just as Dan Dare in it. But some of them, like the Australian Eagle, the Dutch Eagle, are taking strips from Eagle, they may be taking strips from Girl, they may be taking strips from Swift, and they're repackaging them, you know, as a comic for the Australians, for the Dutch. So, you know, th- this idea of selling stuff overseas, um, you know, well established by um, Amalgamated Press, by Holtons by Fleetway by IPC. Uh, so yeah, th- this stuff is all over the world, and finding out, you know, where in the world it, it's appeared. You know, I've I found that really interesting. You know, I mean, I don't have room on my shelf for a whole collection of Il Giorno dei Ragazza uh, comics, but you know, it's nice to have a, a couple of examples um, from around the world. In Portugal as well, uh, I was doing a few comics there. It's a comic, another a very rare comic called Disco Volante. I think is a very early Italian reprint. Disco Valente means flying saucer, so that's an appropriate sort of title. <laughs> um, so there's all sorts of uh, so there's that side of things, and then you know these days there's um, so there's uh, Spaceship Away yeah. magazine. People might have come across that, um, which started probably the early '90s with a sort of a, a desire, sort of from a from a fan point of view to say actually you know what we really want um is we'd really like to see some sort of proper and inverted commas down there strips drawn by the original artists you know could could we do that um would people be prepared to pay basically to commission artists to draw a page of a story um and it started with um keith watson who's one of the later down there artists isn't um, amazing, you know, his his Dan Dare story was that really he he wrote to the Dan Dare studio, he submitted this this great page of art, um, you know, as, as a young artist and basically asked, used his page of art to ask for a job um, uh, and, and got it, yeah. got the job and in the late 60s really worked um, to get Dan Dare back on the front cover, 
draws this amazing series of, of covers in the mid to late 60s, you know, fantastic colour, you know, big, thick black lines, but also some, some amazing uh, colours, these huge sort of front page sort of real attention-grabbing uh, covers that, that, are, that are beautiful. And for a man who, um, who was colourblind, uh, you know, they're even more fantastic. So it started with, with you know, trying to get him to draw a whole new Dan Dare series. Um, but unfortunately, he only, he only drew the first page uh, and some sort of preparatory material um, before he died. Um, but then the work was taken on by, by Don Harley, who'd worked on the original Dan Dare studio uh, and had worked with Hampson on some of the real high points of the, of the original Dan Dare strip, like the Man From Nowhere trilogy. You know, you often see the artwork signed Hampson and Harley um, together, and some of those pages are just, are just so fantastic. Um, so he'd worked on the strip for a long time. He worked in tandem with Frank Bellamy, uh, so when Hampson left the strip in uh, the early 60s, 1960, 1959, I think, uh, um, Frank Bellamy came on, took the strip on for a year, um, but was very unhappy and he only, only, only wanted to do it for a year. He wasn't really into sci-fi. You know, you sort of think about Frank Bellamy in 2000 AD and all those amazing spaceships and things, but uh, he, didn't really, he wasn't really into sci-fi. So he took it on for a year and he would draw sort of the front page and then Don Harley... Um, was often drawing the inside page. So a very strange sort of period for the strip to go from having sort of the high watermark of Frank Hampson and his team drawing sort of two pages, very stylistically consistent to this suddenly front page of Frank Bellamy in a very dynamic um, way to Don Harley's more traditional sort of um, approach to the art. Um, so, so so Don Harley uh, has drawn a... Um, a number of pages for that. I mean, he's, he's still alive, Don Harley, uh, but, but he draws less these days. So, so yeah, so the Spaceship Away magazine, the Eagle Times, you know, it's just an incredible collection um, of interest and, and, and love, I guess, that people um, have for the original Eagle. Um, and, I, and I guess some of that rubbed off in me in terms of the interest that I then sort of broadened out into sort of the history of um, British comics, which, you know, is... And neglected is the wrong word these days, but you know, um, it's underappreciated. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's a better word. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So, so, so that's how I got into the original Eagle. And you know, there are plenty of you know other great artists who I haven't touched on. Who you know who who worked on it. Ron Embleton. Um, again, you know, people might know more from working on you know those amazing sort of fine detail uh, pages that he did. Um, for for Stingray, you know the closing credits uh, for Captain Scarlet. You know it's very, again dynamic sort of pages. Um, but he's, you know, but he, you know he he drew for Eaglers um, uh, a little bit as well. But again, often with these, you know, it's finding that artist and then finding out more about them, um, which is particularly relevant, I guess, for somebody like Ron Embleton at the moment. So you know people know his illustration style. You know very distinctive sort of characters, you know, the way he draws his characters um, but there's just been an exhibition on in London in January um, that showed that didn't show his illustration work but showed his more abstract work um, which is so very, very different um, you know, this is him being a, you know, a, a proper painter in inverted commas um, 
you know, it's so so different. And suddenly, this, this side of somebody who you had no idea existed um, is revealed. And yeah, it was yeah, really interesting uh, to see that. And that's the first time that work has been been shown previously. You know, it would just have been thought of, you know, very highly as an illustrator. But actually, it turned out that you know, behind the scenes, um, you know, he really wanted to be. Uh, a, f- a fine artist an abstract artist um, so yes yeah, so I went to see that a few weeks ago and that was it was really interesting really interesting I'd really yeah. recommend that so. okay yeah I mean uh, it, it does sound like a real uh, labour of love this collection because I, I, I assume it wasn't easy to, to get your hands on a lot of this uh, this this, uh, this work uh, certainly easier these days but not when you were collecting it originally and just on, on the back end of what you've said we are actually um the the eagle society is actually hosting an event in dundee their annual dinner it's actually going to be in dundee this year in april uh, this year and myself and my colleague chris murray have been invited along to that and i'm going to be interviewing uh ian kennedy who is a new eagle uh dandere artist at, at that event so uh, keep your eyes peeled uh, for that event so yeah, uh, let's let's maybe move on to um to to your more contemporary uh choice if we can. Yeah. So just I mean, sorry, I'll just touch back on so Ian so Ian Kennedy, who you're yeah. right, you know, is that so he drew Dan Dare for the new eagle, but of course he worked a, a little tiny bit on the original eagle as well. Yeah. Uh, just when he was starting out in his couple of eagle annuals where he's still signing himself. Uh, Charles, Charles yeah. Chaz, Chaz Ian Kennedy. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so a couple of eagle annual seven and eight or something. You know, he, he has a he has a little bit of work uh, in in there as well. So uh, yeah, always worth fetching um, those out. So uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. On, on to my on to my my contemporary. Well, comment, my it is connected, I think. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So I so I suppose having just yacked about the original eagle. Um, Actually, what I should do um, is talk about the new eagle because that was the comic um, that I read as a kid. That was the comic that my uh, that my granddad got me. Got my brother a humor comic, you know, from Fleetway. So, uh, Wizard Chips, Buster, that sort of thing. Um, but I got um, New Eagle, um, and that was so. That was probably from I read it for about April nineteen eighty three. So when I started, it was still running some of those photo strip stories. Um, like Jake's uh, platoon and walk or die, the, uh, the house of correction. So some of those, but I, I never really read those. I was never really very into them. Um, but they had Ian Kennedy drawing Dan Dare, you know, and, you know, fantastic covers at the time. Um, and then so I read that until the New Eagle finished in nineteen January ninety four. So you know that's ten or eleven years sure. then. Um, and again, you know, the, some of the artists, some of the strip writers, so, you know, John Gillett, um, who we've talked about, um, he was, uh, you know, his art featured when Billy's Boots came over, but on other strips um, as well. Fred Baker, you talked about as a strip writer for Billy's Boots, was this strip writer on uh, Crow Street Comp, uh, you know, a story about sort of, you know, a, a comprehensive um, school, um, what went on there. Um, Green Hill, basically, without the license, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In the way that sort of 2000 AD, you know, lovingly ripped off all those films, you know, an action would have ripped, you know, ripped, ripped off, you know, roll, you know, it's not really rollable, it's something else. And, you know, book jaw is really jaws, you know, it's, yeah, it's Green Hill, but without, without the license. Um, 
So, but yeah, and again, probably, you know, even in New Eagle, you know, it was Dan Dare that was my favourite strip. Um, you know, again, a you know, great selection of artists who worked on it. Uh, obviously, Ian Kennedy um, worked on it at the start, you know, sort of the early 80s, 83, 84. Then probably after him, um, you've got artists. I mean, and John Gillett, again, can we keep going back to John Gillett, but he drew it um, a little bit. Um, other people um, whose work enjoyed on it. Um, I mean, John Burns drew it a little bit. Um, John Ridgway worked on it a little bit. Um, Oliver Frey, um, I think he worked on it in sort of 84, 85. You know, people might remember some of the sort of fantastic sort of covers that he used to draw for sort of Crash, yeah. right? like the ZX Spectrum magazine. Yeah. Um, so uh, so he worked on it. Uh, Carlos Cruz, and that grand tradition of you know, uh, Spanish artists drawing British comics, um, he worked on it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a real high calibre um, of, of people drawing it, uh, and I guess it was still, you know, the, the flagship strip um, of its, uh, uh, of, of that, of the comic. Um, and there were other, you know, I suppose there were the merges as well, so that was how I came to know some of the other strips. So, you know, so when Tiger merged in, like you say, Billy's Boots joined at that point, there were other merges that brought in other comic so uh, so scream i think that was 1984 that merged in so that gave us or gave me uh, uh, the, the monster strip um, which obviously had been uh, just been republished last year by uh, treasury of british comics um, other titles so wildcat would have merged into it um as well um and uh, Tiger was yeah the other one so yes yeah, the selection there and um, so strips like Doom Lord you know that that brand that started off as a, a photo strip um, and you know, and evolved and, and ran and ran and it sort of became this sort of uh, you know science fiction sort of epic within um, Eagle um, and ne ne you know it was never pinched by 2000 uh, AD you know I guess once upon a time you might have thought that you know if, Eagle have been having a tough time. It might have had to emerge in with 2000 AD, and you know you think, well, actually, maybe you know Doom Lord could have been a, a strip that that ran and ran um, in 2000 yeah. AD. Um, um, and um, well, so, yeah, it possibly really sorry, it possibly would have still been going actually in 2000 AD because obviously it was the same uh, creative team of um, John Wagner and Alan Grant who 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 wrote it, and yeah. it was very much a well, very much evolved into a kind of 2000 AD kind of uh, strip. And I was I was always uh, really impressed by Eric Bradbury's work on it. It was very gothic, very dark, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know, it just yeah. to me, it was one of the highlights of the New Eagle. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, again, you know, a real high you know caliber of, of people illustrating it but yeah the eric bradbury with the yeah like i say that real sort of dark uh very gothic style that um that he brought to it um i suppose there was you know there were strips that merged in with 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 battle when that came in that was how i first came across charlie's war as a strip um which i'd never seen before because i was running in battle and I, and I wasn't reading battle at the time and you know, and I just, um, so it was probably the first time I come across Joe Colquhoun's art. Um, and I'd never seen that before. And, you know, it just blew me away as a strip um, uh, and, and still does now, you know, how you know, detailed 
you know, his art is and how, um, you know, just what a fantastic story it is, you know, how different it is to read a story from that sort of ordinary working class um, sort of uh, point of view, you know, which I know Pat Mills um, is, is always keen to, you know, to mention because, you know, it's not a war story told from that heroic point of view or from the leader's point of view, you know, he's real, you know, he's in the trenches and, and he's really suffering and the way, you know, his mates you know, die, you know, they get blown up, you know, there are, you know, panels where, you know, he has to, you know, his mate Ginger, you know, he has to pick up, you know, the remains of Ginger, you know, in a bag, you know, to go and bury him, you know, and some of it, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty gruesome, it's pretty real, um, um, but it's yeah, it's not what you'd, you'd you'd expect from a kids comic. But but yeah, I mean, but, but Charlie's War was fantastic, and it was interesting going back when I was writing for an earlier issue of Comic Scene to look at Charlie's War uh, and to realise that there was one particular episode of Battle of, of Charlie's War when it had been in Battle that had twice not been reprinted in New Eagle. They, you know, they, they, they essentially they'd censored it out. Um, I think there was like a, there's a terrible sort of explosion in a fireworks factory, and somebody gets run over, and something else horrendous happens. You know, it's quite it's quite a full on episode. Um, but but all the other episodes, you know, all the other issues uh, of Charlie's War are in there, dutifully repeated. But, but this one missed out twice. So uh, speculate as to as to why that was. Um, so yeah, so so I love Doom Lord and Mannix. Again, that was another strip that evolved from. It was a photo strip when it started, um, but but grew into uh, a more detailed strip. Uh, the Thirteenth Floor, which came with the merger uh, from Scream. Um, Jose Ortiz art on that. I mean, Ortiz had drawn a number of drew a number of strips for New Eagle, uh, the, the Tower King, uh, one of his sort of early pieces. The um, the, the fifth horseman i think it was cool that was another one he drew a strip later on called survival about a kid in a sort of a post-apocalyptic world um so yeah autism's work is fantastic and it's all for uh, for the treasury of british comics uh, advantage is all in black and white so that's um, to help them uh, reprint some of these stories um and show people what they've been missing. Ron Smith, I suppose he was in there as well a little bit uh, with some of his um, stories. And again, you know, I hadn't seen 2000 AD. You know, I didn't really, you know, recognise him as an artist. But you know, but the, the detail, you know, the, the precision he was putting into to all his pages was uh, was it was incredible. So it was great to to really see some of those stories. Um, so yeah, great selection of artists. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think really it's the artists, and you know those. That's you know that's what's what's always drawn me into um, those strips, um, and then to find out later on, you know what these, what other strips these these artists worked on, you know whether it's in two thousand AD or whether it's in other sort of contemporary titles at the time that I, that I didn't know about. You know, I didn't read Toxic Crusaders, I didn't read uh, Wildcat, I didn't read. Um, Beeb, but you know if you can go back and you can find these tiles, which you know, these days is a bit easier. You know they've invented eBay. Um, you know to see what titles people, what strips people were working on, which which have maybe you know fallen between the cracks a bit. Um, you know there are strips out there that that have got really lost. Um, I remember I did a piece last year, um, Dave Gibbons, 
on a strip that he'd drawn for it was like the it was called the Junior Jet Club, and this was uh, I think they were a BOAC at the time, so British Overseas Airways Corporation, I think. But anyway, but BOAC. Um, uh, this was in the late seventies. This was like their kids' in-flight magazine, you know, mm. to keep people, um, you know, keep kids entertained on flights. And and Dave Gibbons drew this sci-fi strip um, after he'd worked um, on Eagle. And uh, sorry, after he'd worked on Dan Dare for two thousand AD. Um, and you know, it was a real sort of you know to to find it. You know, I found one copy on eBay and thought, oh, that looks like Dave Gibbons art. Um, but I don't really know what this strip is. I can't Google it, you know, because nothing, uh, nothing is here. No, nothing. There's no references to this story. You know, it's really what, um, what is this story? Where did it come from? Um, and eventually, um, you know, I found out more about it. I went to the British Airways uh, archive um, and went through their archives of this story. It's right. called Jet Jet Jason. It was called, um, you know, and it's fantastic. You know, it's high quality. Um, it's a bit. It's a, I guess it's a. You know, he's a. You know, it's just a one-page strip, but it ran in maybe a dozen, fifteen issues of this magazine. Uh, but you know, it's just it's just not out there on the internet. You know, you can't find this sort of stuff. You know, you have to. Um, I, you know, find one comic and go back from there. Um, so yeah, so something I like covering on my blog is, you know, some of these, you know, obscure comics that have maybe, you know, been around for one or two or three or four issues. Um, maybe, maybe published by one of the big publishers, maybe published by somebody smaller. Um, and, but they, you know, they've got an artist in or a writer in that, you know, but you just didn't know they wrote for this particular magazine. So, so I always find that, um, things like that really interesting because otherwise, yeah, they've sort of fallen between, between the cracks. Yeah. Um, a bit, you know, it's just you sort of, when you try and Google things before the early nineties, it's like, Oh yeah, we didn't used to write everything down on the internet. Now, you know, you're just like, <laughs> what have you got from 1987? Well, nothing, you know, you have to go back and you have to find, you know, you have to own a copy of the magazine, you know, if you want to know what's going on and so sort of the magazines, the comics magazines that, that I've collected, um, you know, are to help me do that and to try and fill in some of those gaps and either know what, you know, just to know what was going on in a contemporary way to, to then go and look for that thing because you know, it exists. So, so some of the stuff I do on the blog is some of it's a bit of an aid memoir for me. It's just to sort of say, look, this is all I know about this strip. You know, I'd love to know more about it. And these are all the, the little nuggets I can find about it. You know, if you know more, then then find point me in the right uh, direction. Um, and, I, and I love the the way you can make links as well. You suddenly go, oh, that artist, you know, that writer, they've come up on five things I've written, and they're five very distinct, different things. Um, and if you were just trying to think, I wonder what that person's written, I wouldn't be able to come up with those five things. But you know, if you do it for long enough and you write enough things, then eventually, oh, they wrote that. Oh, they wrote that. They wrote that. Um, so it works really well. Yeah, it's like a, uh, it's like a modern version of the five degrees of separation, I suppose, isn't it? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah you sort of see how how these people um, fit together. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and you know, 
these days, you know, there are not so many comics, but there are a lot more reprints. You know, once upon a time, you know, it was very much skewed the other way. Um, it's I mean, decide how sustainable that is as a business model, you know, for the for the for the future. But um, but at the moment, yeah, there is a lot of high quality reprints that, that are coming out that hopefully are inducing you know characters. Um, I mean, I know you're in Newcastle recently with. Uh, with Ian Kennedy for that uh, that Turbo Jones um, book launch. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've got one Turbo Jones reprint from I don't know um, fifteen years ago, but yeah, I haven't got this nice new one. So um, I need to I need to pick that up as well. So yeah, it's definitely worth picking yeah. up. The, the the reproduction on it is is really really sharp, and uh, yeah. they, they've they've really uh, done a, done a fantastic job on the on the design elements as well. Yeah. And uh, I think there'll be more. Of the wildcat stories uh, coming out um, later on in, in, in the year, um, but go, going back to the new eagle, what was interesting yes. uh, when I was reading it, and and again, it it's kind of what goes around comes around, I suppose. So so Dan Dare was actually not the original Dan Dare at the start; it was a great 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 grandson of the original. Mm. But around about, I think it was nineteen eighty nine, or it might be slightly later than that, um, they reverted back to the original Dan. So, what did you what did you make of that as a fan of the the original uh, Dan? There, what did you think when they kind of reinvented or or brought back the original Dan? Um, well, I guess so. Yeah, so so you're right. You know, so so he came back and he came back with Keith Watson. So you know, Keith Watson was was drawing him. So again, you know, there was the sort of fanfare around. You know, not only is it the original Eagle, it's the original. Oh, sorry, the original Dan Dare. It's the original Dan Dare with an original Dan Dare artist. Um, and though probably Keith Watson probably only drew it for about six weeks. Uh, you know, it was uh, fantastic to see his art again. Um. But I guess quite quickly, it then, although it was the original Dan Dare, it then evolved um, away from that. You know, the uh, I suppose the sort of the, the sort of peace-loving uh, original Dan Dare ethos uh, into something that's a bit more uh, contemporary, I suppose. You know, and I think it was maybe somebody like David Pugh, yeah. um, the artist who took over after. Keith Watson, you know, again, at, at the start of his work, you know, it's very, he's trying to keep it, you know, within that, no, it's the original Dan there, you know, the uniforms are trying to look like the uniforms and um, we've got all sorts of aliens from around the galaxy there. Um, so, but then, you know, but, but then it goes off in, 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 in its own, own direction. And I guess a lot of people who probably read Dan Dare in the, in the 50s, you know, have seen Dan Dare being reinvented a number of times and, you know, their benchmark, you know, is, you know, is not being met really, you know, because they, you know, they have a version of, of Dare which, which, which they want. Um, whereas I suppose for me, you know, I grew up on the, on the New Eagle version. I was aware that there was a 2008D version, but, you know, until really those big, uh, 2018 volumes came out you know, probably last Christmas and the Christmas before. You know, I'd never seen those collected strips in that way. I was aware there was an original Dan Dare, um, you know, Grant Morrison and Ryan Hughes's version from from about 1990 um, that was in Revolver. I've seen that, you know, so so I've seen a, a lot of different iterations, I suppose, a lot of different versions. Um, so I'm probably more comfortable with different interpretations of it um but i guess yeah I'm, i would still hark back to again you know the the art um 
of you know Frank Hampson in the sort of in the late fifties, you know, the, the quality uh, that was that was there. Um, you know, I think that the quality of the art you know reached its peak in those sort of late fifties um, stories and. But then some of the earlier stories, like even even the first story, you know, these are stories that go on for for months and months. You know, the first story, the first Venus story, goes on for about eighteen months. You know, it's two pages a week for uh, you know seventy weeks. You know, um, you know, they're big long stories uh, that, that people uh, are are writing. Um, so you know, so I, I I guess I like that aspect of it as well. You know, that there is a big story to tell rather than probably that more modern sort of, you know, punchy, you know, kids have no attention span. So therefore, you know, we must have very short, sharp stories that are just sort of in and out. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I like the sort of the, the space to breathe and those, you know, the, those longer stories that, um, that respect the reader and in the Hampton's world, he was, cre- you know, there was a whole, there was a university created, um, and, you know, and he knew how everything fitted into it and everything, you know, agreed with each other because he knew, you know, they created these models of, of the characters. They created models of, of, of Space Fleet, you know, where everything was based. Um, they had these amazing sort of reference sheets of the materials and you how tall everybody was or the sort of painstaking detail that went into all the sort of the nuts and bolts that you would never see in the strip. But just to create that world, he had to know how the ships worked um, uh, and I think that gives it an, an authenticity and a truth that people they don't see it but they just feel that it's a real uh, you know that it all hangs together and it all works so, yeah. so I love that about the original strips I mean it was almost run like a, an animation studio rather than a comics studio as such you know with all that reference and model sheets and yeah. physical models you know and I think that really did set it apart and it's interesting what you say about the, the longer run of stories so when when um the new eagle started and it, and it came back it was certainly in the first dandy it did run for for around about 18 months as well and mm-hmm. it was one continuous yeah. storyline but it started off with uh, john wagner and pat mills and pat mills continued on his own uh and it and, and it was kind of one long storyline or story arc but with little sections of different storylines within there so which i thought was really clever and it and it, and it and it maintained that energy over that big span of issues and i was quite disappointed when that initial 18 month run kind of came uh, to an end because then we started to get slightly shorter um you know uh, yeah. runs and and obviously down to scheduling and different artists and you know um and I don't know if it ever quite, you know, it always seemed to me like it was, you know, a few weeks away from another reinvention at that point. <laughs> uh, you know, and again, you know, I think uh, yeah. when Tom Tully took over the writing, you know, he did reinvent him a couple of times to make him more more like the 2000 AD version, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting we say about, you know, Hampson trying to have that sort of that animation studio, you know, effect. Um, you know, that, that was something that, you know, that, that he was really keen on and the detail and the reference, you know, was, was so extreme, you know, the sort of the, the photos that they would take, um, you know, they would probably have you know, members of the studio posing for photographs so that they could then take the photograph, develop the photographs um, so they could see, you know, how the, the folds on the cloth in the uniforms looked, you know, it's went as far as they, when they moved, as an artistic team, they moved from from Southport, um, just north of Liverpool, where, where they 
where Hampson and Marcus Morris, who was the editor, um, had met. Uh, they, they moved to Epsom uh, and, they, and they bought this uh, big house for, for essentially for the artists to live and work in, so they were nearer to London. You know, so the art, you know, you know, it could get there quicker if there were problems. They could be resolved more quickly than if they were living in Liverpool. So they bought a big house um, in it, and, um, and and then they proceeded in one part of the house to take out the floor because they wanted to have double height um, areas so they could take photographs looking looking down or you know or conversely looking up um, in a in a big space. So you know, fantastic attention to detail you know you have these people posing for photos you're there to develop the photos you know so it became an, an expensive um you know strip to run in terms of you know how many people are involved uh in, in producing it every week which you know which eventually became a problem when when the whole press was was taken over they you know looked at the cost of producing this strip uh and immediately wanted to strip that right down um and, and and that happened um and you know it took a lot of readers away from eagle um and you know and it never really recovered um you know and sort of limped on slightly uh, through through the 60s um but i guess you know a lot of those eagle strips you know had that whole long story to them you know that vibe to them i mean um, you know even some of the you know the back page strips like um with churchill which i talked about earlier you know that's running for over a year you know a page a week for over a year you know montgomery um not quite as long as that um but you know they were well it wasn't a problem you know, to, to run a strip you know for, for these lengths of time and in some people you know tom tally i think worked on the original eagle in, it, in its later days in, in the late 60s um so yeah you know they, they could they could do it and there was time for those stories to to breathe uh, and to develop and not have that oh we're, we're nearly finished you know something new and exciting is coming along quickly you know you know it's no no you know, we're fine with this story it's okay so yeah i mean tom toy is quite well known as keeping the, the, the pot boiler going for yeah. months and, and years sometimes you know um and and again you know transferred that over to roy the rovers which he wrote for a huge number of years and, and kind of brought brought the same ongoing you know or almost never ending you know storyline to, to to other uh strips yeah. that he wrote as well um yeah, it's very hard to you know to even think about having to write an article on you know collecting something like roy of the rose because it just as someone you know, again i didn't read roy as i was growing up it's where is the start finish line of this strip you know, with the dan dare stories it's a very clear this story ran for this many episodes it might have been a lot of episodes but it definitely started and it definitely ended. And then they went off and you know, explored a different planet or a different bit of space. You know, there's a real start and end point to it. Whereas I think, you know, the, the Roy ones is like, there's, you know, they played a lot of football in a lot of different places. And it's maybe only the sort of the summer holiday strips, which feel a bit different because, you know, they they go off to some strange, you know, um, you know tin pot. Um, state somewhere and have a misadventure, but yeah, I would find it hard to to know really, you know, what what was what was what was different each year about it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's you know, has its own appeal. Yeah, and um, what do you think about you know the future? I suppose because interesting, you know, we've had two sort of generations of of eagle uh fans readers do you think there's room in the market for the eagle to ever come back or do you think that it's kind of both versions are maybe of their time 
Um, I mean, I think, you know, if you walk into, a, a, you know, Smith's at the moment, you know, there are some comics in there. There's not, not, not lots and lots, you know, but, but you could buy, you know, Striker, um, you know, it's a football comic probably aimed more at adults than kids. That's there at the moment, you know, on the back of a couple of successful Kickstarter campaigns. Uh, the Phoenix, um, which, you know, for, for David Fickling, you know, who's the guy, you know, a very successful publisher, who set that up originally, you know, you know, he's talked about his his love of Eagle um, and I think it embodies what it tries to do in the sense of, um, you know, it's, um, you know, the sort of the, maybe it's like the adventure side um, of, of the stories that are there. You know, it's it's not polybagged with a, with a load of free gifts. It just does not do gifts. You know, it's just about this is about the story. You know, your kids buy this not because there is a piece of plastic t- attached to the front of it that they really like. You know, this is because they like the stories and they like the artists that they have in there. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, you know, as, as close maybe as we're going to get. Um, but maybe you never know because, you know, the there was nothing like Eagle until it launched and suddenly, you know, it launched and you go, Oh yeah. That, that's suddenly very obvious that there's a gap in the market. Uh, and you look at it today and think that, you know, there's no equivalent, but equally is there a, you know, a desire for publishers to take a risk and publish a comic you know, that doesn't come, you know, that isn't based on marketing, you know, that isn't based on, you know, a tie in with a TV show, um, you know, obviously a lot of the children's magazines that are out there are, are magazines. You know, they're not comics. Um, you know, the comic strip isn't the most important thing in them. Um, and, and they're heavily linked to particular TV programs uh, most of the time. Even, you know, Fleetway, when it was still publishing comics after, I think maybe Wildcat was maybe the sort of, the, you know, the last throw of the dice for them for publishing an original um, sort of comic like that after that although they employed they published other comics they were based on uh, you know TV or movie properties so I suppose things like uh, the, uh, the Hero Turtles you know, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles you know it's a comic that ran very successfully for a long time Sonic the Comic ran for a long time um, and again you know I'd love to have a whole collection of that you know because you know, Mick McMahon is somebody we associate with drawing you know the you know the most sort of brutal-looking Judge Dredd, you know, with his very, you know, stylized, you know, big boots and, the, you know, just the, the worst grimace that you ever see on a Judge Dredd. You know, he's drawing some lovely things in Sonic the Comic um, and it's just like, wow, you know, what, what is he drawing? What does his style look like? Yeah. Um, I mean, so, fa- fa- famously as well, Mark Miller actually wrote for uh, Sonic the Comic as well. He did, yeah, 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 <laughs> you're right, you're right. Um, and who was the one I found the other day? Um, uh, Kieran Gillen. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, the first stuff he ever drew was for Warhammer Comic Monthly, um, a couple of the really late issues um, of that. Which again, I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I, you know, I recognised him as an, as you know, as a name, as a, you know, somebody who was a, you know, a contemporary comic creator, very high profile. And then I was looking through his back issues and went, whoa, this says Kieran Gillen on it. Is that the same guy? And I looked it up and you know, Wikipedia says he did some early comic stuff, which he doesn't really like to talk about, and it was in Warhammer. Right, but that's it. It doesn't tell you which issue it is. But I was like, well, I think it's these two issues, um, you know. And I put it up on the blog as a, well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting, and I think it's this, and you maybe are interested because you're all Kieran Gillen fans out there. Um, and you know, I got a tweet from him the other day saying, yeah, it was just those two issues that I did. So yeah, so it's when you find those 
those sort of early works of people saying, yeah, some Mark, I'm not sure if I got any Mark Miller Sonic the comics, but, um, but maybe I do. Because um, I think he was in a few, uh, whereas, you know, Kieran Gillen is in these two issues of Warhammer monthly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's, you know, all these people, all these, you know, people who suddenly become famous as like an overnight sensation. No, no, no. You know, we, we all know they started somewhere and it's just that some of that, that tracking back and saying, you know, how did you get here? So, Someone like, you know, um, Ashwell Wood, Leslie Ashwell Wood, the famous cutaway artist of the Eagle, um, you know, so drew hundreds of those cutaways in the 50s and 60s. But actually you can trace his career back, you know, almost you know, to the early 30s on the cutaway drawings he was doing for things like Modern Wonder magazine, you know, which are, which are much simpler cutaways, but they're still cutaway drawings. And so for him, I guess, it, you know, it was just a, a continuation of what he'd been doing for a long time. But it just... You know, became the most sort of famous and well-known part of his career. But, but yeah, all these people came from somewhere. So, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see if you can track them back where they came from. Yeah, famously in Dundee, we've had a lot of famous names pass through the, the doors of DC Thompson. So we've had, you know, Grant Morrison start his career on Star Blazer. Dave Gibbons started his, his career mostly on, on some obscure uh, strips in, in uh, you know, uh, for DC Thompson and uh, and it's, it's a who's who really of of, of the the industry, often uncredited uh, as well. So a bit yeah, a bit more difficult yeah, to track down. That's that's the bit I really struggle with for the, for those comics is that it's it's not written down. I mean, for for all the comics that I've got, and I've got a lot of comics that were published by um, you know Fleetway in the eighties and nineties. You know, I've got this very big boring spreadsheet. But it just has a list of each issue, who the artists are, who the writers are. There we go, very easy. And then if I do want to look somebody up, I think, oh, what did Grant Morrison write? I can just, you know, control F. Ah, oh, there we go, he wrote that and that and that. And it's quite straightforward. But, you know, because those credits are there um, in a way that just it just isn't possible with, with the DC Thompson ones. You know, the, the, the artist style you might recognise, um, but, but who wrote them? It's hard to say, um, and I guess you know those credits were were in you know were in the original Eagle. It was one of the things that you know again you see us sort of people say, ah, oh, you know, creative credits. He only came in with two thousand AD. That's that's not the case. You know, you could if you pick up a copy of issue one of Eagle, you could look in it. Almost every every page of art is credited to the writer um, and the artist. You know, it's fantastically. Useful, uh, but yeah, but very different from DC Thompson with their sort of concerns about keeping hold of the of the talent for whatever reason. You know, the original Eagle, you know, had it the other way, um, uh, and, and was proud to say who'd who'd drawn it um, and who'd written it. Um, and again, yeah, for research and things, it makes it much easier to collect Fleetway titles than it does to collect DC Thompson, where it's you know it's it's really hard. Yeah, I know they are working on that to, to rectify that, uh, and they certainly credit everyone these days, which is great to see. So even the Beano yeah. now has you know a credit line for the writer and artist, and even yeah. even more recently, they've started to credit uh, Ur Willie and, and the Bruins, uh, which is in the Sunday Post up here, which has never been credited in its whole uh, entire uh, long okay, history. Yeah. Uh, but I noticed recently that that that's credited now as well. So they. They are, you know, getting up to speed, I would say. Um, speaking about research, uh, what have you got coming up article-wise uh, for any future uh, issues of Comic Scene or indeed your blog? Um, 
so probably the only I've written an article uh, hoping for a future issue of comic scene, which is about uh, uh, Digby. So who is Dan Dare's? Well, you know, Batman is the word. You know, Batman with the lowercase B, um, and the sort of the I guess he's he's the he's the the, the comedy element of it uh, of, of the strip. You know, he doesn't really look like a spaceman you know and, and there's you know there's no fitness test that he could possibly pass really you know he, you know he's quite a he's quite a chunky sort of guy uh but you know he's sort of loyal he's determined um you know he you know he you know he's dan there's assistant um you know literally is, is batman in that sense um um so it was interesting i picked out a couple of stories from a book from the early fifties, one of the sort of the the earliest Dan Dare spin-off, and it was just called Dan Dare Space Book uh, from nineteen fifty three, I think, uh, which has art by a number of the original sort of creative team, and was really a, sort of a spin-off book in the way that Hampton wanted to do spin-off books. Um, you, you know, have you know the the best creators on them, um, but but was never able to do because you know the 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 pressure of the weekly deadlines for the strip was too much. Um, so there's a couple of, so there's, there's a text story in there um, and, and there's a comic strip and then both these, you know, have Digby as the sort of the front and center character, you know, not just the sort of the hanging around by the edges, doing a bit, bit of exposition and providing a bit of light relief. You know, th- these are stories about Digby. Um, and certainly this text story I'd never read and I started reading and I was like, Oh, hang on. Some of this is not very Digby ish. You know, this is, or maybe it is very Digby ish. It's just not the side of him that we're used to seeing. Um, and then there's another, and there's a comic strip, which is about his, uh, his misadventures, you know, an afternoon's misadventures with, with Digby, you know, he just ends up like on a jet propelled rocket, you know, racing around the space fleet and being shot at, and you know, and causing mayhem. So you know, but but, but he's the hero of these stories. So you know, that's, that's different to see. Um, so uh, so that will be in a uh, a future issue. Um, and as ever, you know, I've, I've submitted to uh, Tony. You know, a number of things I'd be interested in writing about. Um, what have we got uh, on the blog? Well, coming up, it's. Um, in the next few days here, I'm going to have some stuff about, yeah, we had the jigsaw today. Um, so uh, Steve McManus, uh, ex-Tharg, uh, 2000 AD, um, he had a book out a while ago about his life uh, work, working for 2000 AD, uh, Mighty One, My Life Inside the Nerve Center. But he's also published a book called Elm's World, about, which is more about his sort of his, his childhood days, you know. It takes his story up until the point where he he started at Fleetway, um, and that's come out to much less uh, less fanfare from him and less. Um, but I was, you know, I, I saw it, I read it, um, so he's you know answered a few questions about that. Um, so we'll have that on there. Um, I've also picked out when I went to see the Frank Hampson exhibition in. Southport, there was a, a copy of the, not quite the script, but sort of like the, the series Bible, I suppose you'd call it these days, um, that had been written by uh, a chap called Paul de Savary, who owned the rights to Dan Dare in uh, uh, probably the mid 1970s. So after the original Eagle Finish book, before 2000 AD started, um, you know, there was, it was going to be. 
um, uh, film. So he'd written this sort of, you know, like I say, this series Bible. They had a copy of it in Southport. Um, and I realised that it's probably only five or six pages of full scat. But the but of all the sort of dander and eagle fanzines I've ever read over the years, you know, which is a lot, I don't think I've ever read what was supposed to happen in this film world that, that the Savary had created because he, he owned the rights and he wrote the series Bible. Uh, and I realised that actually, if you stood very carefully, you could just get the light just right and you could read most of the first page of what of what he was uh, what he'd written about you know how he saw this world happening so i just stood over this uh, this film treatment um and tried to write down what he'd written for this first page to have a glimpse of of his vision you know which it turns out is very different from um you know it's not set in the days when the original eagle stories were set you know that's set well not even now you know that the original legal stories are set in the, the late 1990s, um, but De Savary's world is, you know, is, is far in the future from that. So the pace of technological change is very different. The, you know, it's all, it's all quite different. It's not just a uh, right. We'll just remake the first Dan Dare story. Um, so, so yeah. So that's, uh, you know, I don't think anyone's ever covered that before. So that'll be good to uh, cover. Um, uh, talking of DC Thompson and. Uh, the work there, um, Graham Neil Reed, uh, who's one of the select band of people who've been a DC Thompson cover artist. I mean, it's quite a, a short, you know, for a comic that's been going for what is it over 5,200 issues or something, you know, it's quite a short list of people who've been the cover artist. Um, uh, it's not just because they're all Ian Kennedy covers. I mean, I know about it. Uh, I know about. I'm not having to go at Ian. You know, <laughs> he can't help being brilliant. It's 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 hard work being brilliant. But um, you know, it, but he's you know, it's like a third of them or something. Are Ian Kennedy covers, aren't they? You know, yeah. some astonishing number. And then you've got oh, we got you know somebody else did a few hundred. Oh, Keith Page has done a couple of hundred. You know, by the time you go through, it, you know, there's. Um, but anyway, but Graham, you know, so he's he's a you know a very recent addition to the you know, the, the people who've done covers for Commando. He's, he's done a few recently. Um, and he's somebody that um, that, I, that I came across um, through um, a mutual friend, uh, you know, that I follow on Patreon, um, and so he's been kind enough to answer a few questions about, you know, about that sort of that, that process. How does it how does it work with DC Thompson? You know, how, do you, how do you get a commando cover? How does it how does it work? What do you have to do about the backwards and forwards? And um, so I think he's done three covers so far, and he's got. I saw on the Commando Twitter feed the other day, I saw the next one, which sort of half black and white, half colour at the moment, and is somebody looks like a sort of a British Tommy cycling downhill very fast away from the advancing German army on, on a bicycle. I think that's my, my best description of it. So um, so we'll have that. Um, and, I mean, I probably the blog is only ever, I have it written about a week in advance. I try, I try and have a, a few days in, in advance, um, you know, I never have enough time to have it months and months in advance. And some of it is a mix of things that, you know, that I find on the internet, like on eBay for particular original art that might be for sale or obscure things. There was some Brian, some, somebody was selling off some early Brian Boland art the other day, which I just spotted. So it was just like, yeah, that'll be interesting. I'll, I'll put that in. Um, so these things, you know, can just turn up on the day. I think for, they were selling off a, a Brian Boland birthday card. No, Christmas card, I think. Christmas card from the early 1970s. That was 50 quid, so somebody paid 50 quid for that. Brian Boland uh, 
Christmas card, and which was actually it was signed by Bowden, so you knew it was legit. And then I think the same seller then sold like a like a leaflet for a burger restaurant um, from the very early 1970s, which wasn't signed. But this guy was like, no, no, I lived with Brian at the time, and honestly. This is his burger restaurant advert. <laughs> so you know, you know. So there are things like that that I would just, you know, I would try and pick up or particular pieces of original art. Um, if I see, you know, th- there's a lot of original art for sale out there, but you know, I picked up one item that I'd seen this week on one of the covers for Warrior magazine, a Mick Austin uh, Miracle Man uh, cover. Uh, so there's a couple of Miracle Man covers that Mick Austin drew for uh, Warrior, but it's, you know, one particular one is coming up for sale in the in the states um so it'll be a mix of that um hopefully um some um things are going on in london um i'd love to write a piece for a comic scene about uh, posy simmons um she has a big uh exhibition opening at the house of illustration which is in central london um uh, about may i think it is running over the summer um so posy simmons i suppose i've came across her work um in the guardian in the early 80s um you know she was you know, sort of a weekly cartoon on the on the women's page in the guardian um sort of a sort of strip about um the the the, the Vabers, the Wabers, however you pronounce it um and, and i just and I, and I loved her art then and, and i've read it um ever since and she's you know she's drawn some really lovely and interesting things, literary adaptations, things like Gemma Bovary, Tamara Drew. Um, but she didn't start in The Guardian. Um, actually, she started um, in The Sun. That was the first newspaper that ever published her work. She used to draw these little four-panel strips, which were quite of their time and of their place, shall we say. Um, so, you know, they are quite racy, you know, um, uh, they are quite rude, um, and um, yeah. So, but you know, everyone has to start somewhere. Um, and you know, I've been to talks that she's done in the past. You know, with, I went to talk once she did with Raymond Briggs, which was fascinating. Um, went to talk she did at the British Library a couple of years ago as part of their comics, um, comics unmasked exhibition. Uh, and she brought along some really early comics that you know that she'd hand drawn at home. You know, because um, sort of. Um, you know sort of girls comics so probably based on sort of school friend or the four marys or something um and really you know early work that she'd done there um and, and i think she's a a fantastic graphic artist um so i love reading her work and she see at christmas she had a new book out cassandra dark um but yeah she's got this big exhibition coming up um in may and there's you know big um i think uh, paul gravette well-known sort of comics writer scholar um he's written a uh, sort of a monograph to go with that that will be coming out soon so yeah uh, posy simmons that's what i'd like to write about next um but i'm sure there are other um angles and things that, that i'd like to cover um comic scene again some of the i heard the um uh, the 2008 podcast the other day where the uh, we're talking about the upcoming books that they were going to do on uh, Wildcat. So there's an, uh, the Loner strip that that's coming up next. I think that's coming out in the autumn. And that's so there's sort of two phases to Loner. There's a sort of the early phase, which is drawn by as a bit of Ron Smith, uh, and there's quite a lot of David Pugh 
art in that. Um, and yeah, at the time I wasn't, you know, when I when I read it at the time, I wasn't quite so keen on David Pugh with these sort of big crazy aliens. Um, but now I really like his big crazy aliens. Uh, you know, I can see the influence of people like uh, Massimo Bellardinelli, you know, with his big crazy aliens that he drew. Um, the Dan Dare in 2000 AD. Um, so there's that side of the story, which is, you know, a real sort of, um, um, he's a bounty hunter loner and he's exploring this planet by himself. Um, and he, he gets into um, these these adventures. Um, and then there's a second sort of phase of the stories, which, which are drawn by Eric Bradbury, um, who we talked about earlier, who is, yeah, very different from that sort of David Pugh, sort of quite glistening, big guns, big muscles, uh, big aliens. Everything is big, you know. This is back to being Eric Bradbury, and he's back to being a more traditional bounty hunter, um, and you know, sort of fighting dirty deeds in dirty parts of the planet. Um, so yeah, so so I'd like to um, see more about Lone. I mean, his stuff has been reprinted a little bit. Uh, before, not all of it, but there are, you know, dedicated loner comics you can get out there from Fleetway from back in the day. Um, I think next way, the next year, I've read that they're going to bring out a Kitten McGee collection, um, which again I've covered on my blog in the past. Uh, that's drawn by uh, Jose Ortiz, um, and, it, and that's about a sort of a, a gang um, of women who are. Also, they're all exploring the same planet in Wildcat. They all, it's all, they're all existing in the same universe and literally on the same planet. Um, and that's a, sort of a gang of female fighters. And their their leader is this, I mean, unbeknownst to them, actually, she's incredibly old, has to keep drinking this sort of elixir of life to to keep her going. Um, and some of the art in that, some of the art in that is again kind of racy for a boys' comic. You know, there are you know they are mainly running around in bikinis these women it seemed um when, when i covered it a while ago and you know some real pin-up stuff um but you know but it's, it's all tease and it would be great to get that out there so yeah if I, um, i'd like to go back and, and and revisit those strips um so yeah so the things that treasury british comics are putting out um you know I, i'm really enjoying and i've enjoyed what they've done so far bringing you know some of the slightly obvious stories I suppose you know 13th floor it was great to get that Leopard and Lime Street back in print um, but then you know a strip like Marnie the Fox I think that was maybe the, was that the first book they yeah. put out you know the, you know the, that to me I was like what you know you've just bought you know all these hundreds of comics all these thousands of characters you know and yet the first one you put out is about a fox I've never I've never heard of this story I've never come across it uh, but but then you know I went to the launch and you know, I met John Stokes there you know who's you know, fantastic and full of beans and full of life, uh, and and the and the story is amazing. Yeah, um, is is art, and it's really like wow. I can, yeah, I could see why you would put this out. You know, it feels like a very left field choice, but actually, um, it, it's it's a great choice. Um, so it's yeah. What what are those other stories that are that are buried in there? That you know, maybe like in the girls' comics. You know, there are things that you know. I know there've been three misty reprints so far. Some things from. Tammy, I think it is it with like Bella at the bar, and there's another um, couple of strips coming out, and there'll be a, a collection of uh, Romero's work. I think um, that maybe is, is that the misty artwork of Romero. Uh, so you know Romero, you know, I know from drawing James Bond strips, you know, and he um, 
Uh, no, what was I in? No, Modesty Blaze. Man. I'm, getting, yeah. I'm getting confused. Yeah, so yeah, Modesty Blaze, you know, and, you know, they're very dynamic, action-packed. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I guess I'm interested, you know, what, what are these things that, you know, that are a bit buried, that, you know, like I said, that, that interest me in comics, and I think, oh, I didn't, you know, that was there, or, oh, they drew that. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so, again, it's... I don't think, you know, you, you could reprint a lot of Billy's boot strips, you know, if it ran for 20 years, you know, even if you get, you know, are Treasury British Comics going to put out 20 volumes? Maybe, maybe not. But, um, you know, I'd like to think they get a few out. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, what are their priorities going to be? Is it to print 20 volumes of Billy's boots or is it going to be to print 20 volumes of different stories that, that we don't that we don't know about? And that'll come down to sales, I guess, so. We shall, we shall see. So yeah, so um, all sorts of things um, on the blog. Um, you know, if I can pick up sort of fanzines, you know, uh, uh, collecting fanzines as well. Um, because again, you know, some of this, you know, you have to know what was going on at the time. You know, that's that's the internet of the 1970s. You know, if you want to know what people were thinking and drawing about, you know, the, there is there's no other place to go um, for that sort of stuff and you know there's a, a lot of fanzines have been published and um, you know Eagle fanzines and more you know comics more generally and some of that has been covered in um, some of the stuff that, uh, that David Hathaway Price um, has put out he's sort of collected two volumes so far of, of writing um, on, on fanzines and I think he's working on a third volume uh, at the moment and I've I've written pieces for, for both those. You did one book about fanzines and one book about conventions. So, uh, yeah, so they've been interesting to, to work on as well. So, yeah, good stuff. Great. And lots of lots of stuff to look forward to there then. Um, yeah, so thanks for, for joining us. And uh, what we'll do is I'll... Uh, put a link on the uh, Comic Scene Podcast uh, Facebook page to your blog um, because there's a whole wealth of, of content there that I think uh, any comics fan would be uh, really interested to, to, uh, to see. So, yeah, so thanks very much for, for taking the time out to, to speak to us and uh, hopefully speak to you again soon. Yeah, okay, that'll be great, Phil. Take care then. Thanks. Bye. Okay, bye, man. Join us next time on Comic Scene, the podcast. <laughs>